Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin. It's that time of year again when Protestant Christians the world over celebrate the Reformation because on October the 31st, 1517, Martin Luther either did or perhaps did not nail or glue the 95 theses against indulgences to the castle door in Wittenberg and so triggered what is now known as the Reformation, though the 95 Theses themselves were, in some sense, not a particularly radical document. Luther had said more radical things before, and was certainly to say more radical things after. It is the date where Protestants typically celebrate the start of the Reformation, which, of course, makes uh, mid-October to mid-November the time of year when I am least likely to be unemployed in any (laughs) 12-month cycle, Mm -hmm. Uh, having spent much of my life studying the Reformation, writing and talking about the Reformation. Of course, the Reformation uh, uh, occupies a significant part in the historical discipline as something of great scholarly interest. But for Christians, it also represents something of great pressing practical interest as well, because the theological insights and the pastoral developments that were built on those theological insights, I think, remain of perennial relevance uh, to Christians throughout the ages. Mm-hmm. What do you guys think? Not well, relevant. <laughs> yeah, it's not relevant at all. I think anybody who spends a lot of time studying it has probably wasted their life. No, um, certainly, it, we, when we were talking earlier, so much of, of what drove uh, the Reformers had to do, I, I think, Carl, you would probably confirm this, you know, deep pastoral concerns, and so things like um, assurance of salvation, um, was was a was a pastoral concern among the reformers that you know m- medieval Catholicism had basically hadn't they anathematized the idea of assurance of salvation? Yes, uh, assurance as a regular part of the ordinary Christian right. life was was right. not really part of the medieval agenda right. at all. There were those who could be assured of faith, but they were the sort of super saints, yeah. Yeah. if you like. Typically, the believer was not to expect assurance. And then you had things like clarity of scripture which was a real doctrinal innovation because uh, probably at its essence that that began to undermine the idea or necessity of of the magisterium that was a wouldn't you say that would be a, that would have been a strike at the magisterium or at least how Rome would have seen it yes in 1520 it's one of the points that Luther highlights as uh, empowering the roman see is this yeah. idea that only the pope or only the pope and the college of cardinals can properly interpret scripture for the church at large luther of course i think it's an exaggeration to say that he put the bible into the hands of every man to be his own interpreter luther may have said some things tending that way early in his reforming career but he did back off that wisely later on i think but certainly luther breaks one of the one of the great shackles by which the laity abound is the denial of the accessibility and the clarity of scripture yeah and 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 
there has been, and I've read from time to time over the years, the idea that Luther has been appropriated to somehow justify a kind of radical individualism. But that's a terrible misappropriation of Luther, isn't it? Because he's still very much held to the necessity of the preaching office and the requirements that those who preach be be trained and and ordained within the church, the kind of radical individualism that perhaps you see among the radical reformers, Luther would have rejected, I would imagine. Yes, that becomes more the case after 1525. In 1525, you have these uh, the Peasants' War, mm-hmm. inspired in part by a selective grabbing hold of sound bites from Luther's right. thinking. Luther distances himself from that kind of political revolution. And then in 1527, 1528, there's a visitation of the Lutheran parishes in Saxony, which brings to Luther's attention many of the problems involved with the priesthood of all believers idea, uh, the lack of hierarchy and authority within the church. So the later Luther of, say, 1527 onwards certainly places much more emphasis upon the authority of the church and the need for careful, we might say, confessional regulation of preaching and of theology than, than the earlier Luther. So what about the laity? Um, yeah, I mean, what, that's... What, what, what did the Reformation begin to mean to the laity? Uh, a number of things. Uh, most obviously in the abolition of the traditional sacred-secular divide relative to callings. In the Middle Ages, monks and nuns were seen to have higher, more God-glorifying callings than, mm-hmm. than those who tilled the soil. What Luther does is he he turns that idea on its head and he says, no, what makes a calling God-glorifying or dignified is whether you do it in faith or not. Mm-hmm. So ordinary people, and ordinary people in Saxony in the 16th century would by and large have been laboring people, peasant people, were able to find a God-glorifying dignity in their everyday work. Mm-hmm. Uh, Luther also placed more responsibility on the shoulders of the laity. If justification is by grace through faith through trust in the promise as it's proclaimed, then that imposes upon individual lay people a responsibility to grasp the promise for themselves. Grace is not given to them in an objective, as they would say, ex opere operato manner by the sacraments. It's something that has to be actively grasped by faith, by the individual. And therefore, the individual is both given more dignity and more responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. doesn't that it didn't, it didn't it also change the way that you know theology was written um, in ways that the layperson can also engage with and understand? Even his publishing, what is that book? Brand Luther mm-hmm. talks about how innovative he was, even just making the books more attractive yeah. Yeah. to to buy. Even though he still has an emphasis <clears throat> on the preached word. And, um, you know, most of his parishioners were unable to read, but yet writing was starting to change. And I think theology was being written for the layperson as well. Yeah, Luther had an instinctive grasp of the power and the nature of the print medium. I mean, you've alluded to Andrew Pettigrew's great new book, Brand Luther. You know, Luther was even concerned with the fonts that were used to present right. uh, his text. He knew some fonts. Yeah, and of course his books also contained many illustrations because even yeah. if you couldn't read, and most people couldn't read in the 16th century, so Todd you could communicate. Todd would have been pictures. Todd would have been like a, you know, a pig in in mud in the 16th <laughs> century. Picture books everywhere. He was picture my hero. Books he was 
Yeah. 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 So yes, Luther had an instinctive grasp of the medium and an instinctive grasp of how to get the message out to the masses. Because of course, his own safety depended upon his appeal outside the church. He needed the nobility on side. It was very helpful to have the ordinary man on his side as well. Popular appeal made him a hard man to touch. Mm-hmm. The track records of those who stood against the church prior to Luther was not a strong one. Uh, But Luther had the ability to build popular appeal that, if it didn't make him invulnerable, certainly made him more difficult for the authorities, the Roman authorities and the authorities in the Holy Roman Empire to deal with. Right. So, so, and that's part of the irony is here he's being protected by the by the elector there, Frederick, who himself was as superstitious a Roman Catholic as you could possibly get. Yeah. Frederick is a fascinating character because he he goes on this trip to Jerusalem in the late uh, 15th century, and he builds this, as a result of the trip to Jerusalem, he builds a sort of remarkable relic Mm -hmm. collection in Wittenberg, which is actually why Tetzel is not allowed to sell indulgences in electoral Saxony, because it would damage Frederick's own trade. <laughs> so Luther's dealing with a problem. He's dealing really with the problem of his parishioners going over into a neighboring territory to buy indulgences. They can't buy them in Wittenberg because the, the elector won't allow it because he doesn't want to lose his own money from his trade in what we would regard as superstition. No. Yeah. So as we think about some of the pastoral impact of the Reformation, what did it mean for preaching? And I know that's a big question, but but essentially, what did it mean for preaching versus what had been really the more typical practice in the medieval church? Yeah. Well, the, the, there were great preachers in the medieval church. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Dominican order was founded as an order of preachers. Mm-hmm. You know, Bernard of Clairvaux, Cistercian, was a great preacher. Mm-hmm. What Reformation did through its theology and its understanding of the word was it placed preaching at the center of the church's life. If you, if you wanted to meet God, you met him in the mass, to put it crudely. Mm-hmm. In a Reformation worship service, you met God in the proclamation of his word. So it made preaching central. Preaching, of course, was conducted in the vernacular. It became non-negotiable. You couldn't have the administration of the sacraments without the proclamation of the word because it was the grasping of the promise that made the sacraments powerful to salvation. So preaching took center place. The pulpit architecturally moved to the center and was elevated in certain contexts in order to to demonstrate that. And the the sermons we have, even of of Luther, range on a – there were – yeah. expository sermons going through books of the Bible, but there were also occasional sermons. I've just picked up a new volume, just been published, of Luther's pastoral writings. And there's a sermon in there uh, entitled Consolation for Women Whose Pregnancies Have, have Not Gone Well. It's a, it's a little treatise designed to help women who've had miscarriages or stillbirths. And Luther was deeply rooted in the life of ordinary people and his pastoral work, his preaching and his writing reflected how he understood the pastoral office. It was a word-based office, bringing the word of God to bear upon the congregation. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why perhaps some people are surprised that Luther never, never produced a systematic theology, but it's, so much of his written theology was pastoral in orientation. I mean, I think about his little book uh, that, that he wrote on, on a way to pray, you know, just trying to teach lay people how to, how to pray well. Yeah. And uh, it seemed that a lot of his th- written theology had kind of occasional purposes to them. They were written for specific occasions, specific purposes. Yeah, his theology is remarkably consistent. 
mm-hmm. on the whole. But it's not systematic in the classical sense. Here's a poser for Amy, though. Uh, Robert Wilkin, the, the Roman Catholic uh, historian, great church historian, once said to me, I hope you noticed the nice name drop there. Yeah. Uh, well, once said to me that Luther destroyed the idea of strong religious women. Uh, and his argument was you look at medieval Catholicism, you look at Catholicism since the Middle Ages, there are a lot of leading religious women, Catherine of Siena, Hildegard of Bingen, you, know, you name them, they're there. His claim was after Luther, the Protestant model was Katie the housewife, mm-hmm. the woman who looking after the children home, that Luther effectively shunted women into the private space of the household. Praise what do you think about Lord. that? Yeah, I mean, there are many things to be said for that. But uh, Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, that's kind of a flattening because he also revolutionized, I think, in a lot of ways, even with, with how we think about women and her connection to the household now, when you look at Lord Katie's responsibilities that she had i mean she was a businesswoman she was mm-hmm. she had a lot of freedom in that marriage yeah yeah but if we studied their marriage we would see a big difference between how a lot of popular evangelical teaching is on authority and submission yeah. i mean how many fit of these, into that framework how many of these new guys would let their wives you know brew beer <laughs> that had that had such distinct health benefits for martin well, she had her own place too. What was it called? Like Soul Store or something? She could yeah. just, you know, go to. I mean, like, how many women get one of those? I'm dying for one. She was one of my favorite Luther anecdotes is uh, she bought, for his birthday, she bought this door frame. You can still see it at the Augustinian cloister, which became their home. Frederick, the elector gave it to them when they got married. And this, this door frame has a stool on either side. And she bought it because she didn't think they were talking enough together. So she bought this door frame. So at the end of each day, she and Martin would sit on either side of the door and have a conversation. And That's if it was brilliant. raining, there was a similar arrangement in the, the window upstairs. Um, she seemed every bit as feisty as him. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, I'm just reading a, a new, one of the new biographies of Luther at the moment, written by a, a feminist uh, historian. And one of the odd things about Luther is he, he makes some pretty, what we would now regard as misogynistic comments about women. Yes. But he also is one of the first Christian writers who, you know, my wife will kill me for saying this on air, I suppose, but who actually thought that, that women should enjoy sexual relations. <laughs> yeah. that, uh, that it wasn't just about the man, it was actually about the man and the woman. Yeah. And that's very interesting. Uh, you know, he had a very positive view of sex, yeah. which is... So it's much more it's, nuanced it's than I think the yeah. Wilkin. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, when I see Robert again, I'll, I'll tell him. I'll tell <laughs> well, him. Amy well, says this. Well, the <laughs> Church, yeah, the Catholic Church, you know, th- their deal was they just liked, you know, those goofy mystic women. You know, as long as you were a mystic and... <laughs> You know, we're climbing the inner castle or whatever. You were fine, I suppose. We, we just like goofy women. Exactly. Amy's, not, Amy's not mystic. She's just goofy. That's right. And really, I think that we could sum up. How did she up get the, on the program again? <laughs> I think we could sum up really the most important aspect of the Reformation by that final observation. We like goofy women. And I, and I think if you get that, then you get the Reformation. So uh, we're really glad that you joined us for this discussion. We hope that uh, it's uh, uh, enlightened you on a, on a few points of the Reformation. We do want to give something to you. We like to give away books periodically. And if you'll uh, 
go to our website, mortificationofspin.org. You'll see a place where you can uh, receive a free copy, uh, the first few lucky responders to uh, receive a free copy of a book entitled Luther on the Christian Life. Now, the name of the author has been lost to history, but we understand <laughs> that the book is good, and uh, we'd love to uh, send that out to a few of our most fortunate listeners if you'll go to mortificationofspin.org. Also, this is a listener-supported podcast, and if you feel so led to to donate uh, to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals to uh, continue to produce this, we'd uh, be happy for you to do that as well. Uh, hope you enjoyed the discussion, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about um, the subject of losing a child or dealing with the death specifically of an unborn child i don't know quite quite what to say to be helpful um to someone in that situation and and i'm also afraid that i may say something that's unhelpful there really is no silver lining in this um apart from knowing christ i'll tell you i i've reread the the confessions and creeds of the church in an entirely different light since then, as well as, of course, the Psalms. Mm. That interview is next time. Join us then. Who's going to introduce this one? Who's going to kick us off? You are. Uh, you have to. Come oh, on, okay. Truman. I'm doing it. Who's going to introduce the topic of the Reformation? <laughs> well, you the could introduce who, it and then say, like, the, really the amazing ones who have no formal training and have never written a book about it. Oh, I don't know. Maybe. Or maybe the guy who's written this big, thick book on Luther's theology that costs about $200. I, I suppose that guy could. You know, I'm hey, just spitballing Korean you. translation is much cheaper, man. <laughs> free trans- get a free copy of the Korean translation. <laughs> Should the guy who wrote Luther on the Christian life introduce the topic? I don't know. Well, I, you know, I, crib- <laughs> I plagiarized it from a bunch of other writers. You know, just part of my research method. <laughs> You'd memorized all those things and forgot that you actually forgot. memorized they, them from I internalized them to such an extent that mm-hmm. I actually wrote as if I was Heiko Oberman and never realized it. <laughs> I was horrified when I discovered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but no, I'm not returning any of my royalties. <laughs>